Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 7th, 2018, and this is episode 2177 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a guy coming on the air with me today that you've heard of a million times, but you probably won't recognize his name. His name is Ben Fetterman. Who the hell is Ben Fetterman? You know him as Southpaw Ben, one of our big contributors on the TSP Wiki for the history segment. In fact, the history segment for today is from Southpaw Ben. So is he going to talk to us about history? Eh, not really. Is he going to talk to us about the TSP Wiki? No, not at all. Maybe a little bit. He's going to talk, us about, talk to us about a project called Odyssey of the Mind. This is a competition for school children. And uh, Ben has competed in Odyssey of the Mind for four years in high school, including one trip to the World Finals competition and three times to the Pennsylvania State Finals. He's going to tell us what this is all about. He's currently a sophomore in college at Penn State University. And apparently this has had a big influence on him. And he really thinks that it can help a lot of our listeners out there with your kids and, and, and getting them more out of their educational process. We're going to even talk a little bit today about how you know homeschoolers, et cetera, can compete in this, what this project is, and how giving children the opportunity to solve a big problem can actually turn them into better young adults as they grow up. We'll have all of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to uh, Ben, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Guys, it's a really simple thing. You got a gun, you got no ammo, you got a club. Can't do what a gun's supposed to do. You don't have a lot of ammo, you can't train with the gun, and if you need the gun to do something at some point, you may not be up to the task because you haven't trained enough. So you need ammo both to make sure that gun is usable when necessary and to make sure that you train so that you can be usable when necessary. And that's true of, of all things. doesn't matter if you're defending your home or your property or somebody else. You're just trying to put meat on the table. Now, the thing about ammo is it can add up and get expensive. So what you want is huge availability. You want great pricing. And if you're buying it online, you want lightning-fast shipping, the place you'll find that all bulkammo.com. Remember, they do do a discount for members of the MSB, so check the MSB before you order if you're a member. And if you're not a member, uh, you might want to become a member because that discount alone can do a lot toward paying for your membership for a year. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine, brought to you by the same folks that brought you Backwoods Home Magazine for over 20 years. I was actually a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine from 1993 all the way up until they discontinued operations in 2017. There ain't many things in my life I did for that long, but being a subscriber to Backwoods Home was one, and I was pretty bummed to hear that they were going to be going away. But when I heard that they had gone kind of through an evolution to a next level and, and what have you, and that some of the folks from Backwoods Home had come over, but new people were there with new energy and new ways and new ideas, that Self-Reliance Magazine was a thing, I was pretty happy about it. I've really been enjoying I just uh, got through my latest issue of it. I think you'll enjoy it, too. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And just like our other sponsor today, BulkAmmo.com, self-reliance.magazine does do a discount for MSB members, so check before you sign up. 
Uh, it just makes sense to save that money and, uh, and help support the show and our sponsors at the same time. Before we get on the air with Ben, let's uh, coincidentally hear from Ben. In the death of Hyacinth in the year 108 at tspwiki.com. Born in AD 96, Hyacinth had be only become well known because of his death and the rise of Christianity. According to Christian lore, both Orthodox and Catholic, he was raised in a Christian family and became an assistant for the Chamberlain, who was in charge of managing royal household of Emperor Trajan due to his friendly manner and being articulate for his age and moved to Rome from, his, central, from cent, his home in central Turkey as a result. His Christian beliefs left him at odds with the rest of the royal courts as such, refused to join in the sacrifices to the Roman gods. This caused him to stand out and be prosecuted for his faith. The emperor decided to both punish him and test his faith by imprisoning him and only offering him meat that had been sacrificed to idols as food. During this time, the food was forbidden for Christians to eat according to their doctrine, Hyacinth, however, refused to eat and eventually starved to death in defiance. Today, both in the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches, that he is viewed as a martyr and a saint. He remains where uh, his remains were returned to his home in Central Turkey today. However, they reside in Abbey in Germany. My take by Southpaw Ben. The title of the Orthodox article on Hyacinth is "Jealousy That Kills." They suggest the reason he was ousted as a Christian for not participating in the ceremony was because he was being given a high position for his young age, and his fellow servants and assistants were jealous. This would make him yet another casualty of gaining too high and powerful a position that caused him to be a target for backstabbing and sabotage. I'd say there's probably something to that, because there were probably plenty of other people that were abstaining from these activities and were Christian or maybe some other religion or sect that were largely ignored if they didn't have any kind of public image. And when you do see a person rise, it is almost immediate that people will begin to try to tear them down. Especially people that feel like the person rising up is their reason for being stuck where they are. And you can see this in things that are not political or not, and, and how it actually hurts the people, uh, doing the, the, the tearing down more than the person being torn at. In, in, in many ways. Now, not if they're being, you know, starved to death in a dungeon or something, but in, in modern day. What I mean by this is, for instance, when my wife was still working, one day she went to work and she had a piece of steak we had cooked the night before left over for lunch. And when she sat down with the rest of the girls to eat, one of them said, well, Jack must be doing pretty good if you can afford to eat like that. Now, the funny thing was it was probably about three or four bucks worth of leftover steak. Now, not the whole steak, but what was left over and some sides and stuff. She might have had five bucks in this this lunch. And they're sitting there eating cafeteria crap food they probably paid eight or nine dollars for. So they actually were spending twice as much uh, for garbage food compared to us eating really high quality food because we cook for our damn selves. But that attitude is is why these these people would never really get ahead in life. And that that's the truth. When you think that somebody else's success is a reason for your failure, you have written your own you know destiny of failure. And, and I guess I mean another thing that I, I can't help but notice here is that. There's nothing in the daggone Bible or the Gospels or anything that actually would lead somebody to believe that they couldn't eat that food because it was sacrificed to idols. Well, so it, it, it's it, it. This is one of my issues with religion. So the people that put together the idea of the religion decided there were certain things you couldn't do, and somebody was willing to die for them with 
yes, admirable faith, but no grounding in reality. It's just something to think about, and because religion also stems into many other parts of our lives. There's a lot of things that people who don't consider themselves to be believers in any higher power are religious about. Just keep that in mind as well as you have your walk through life. Anyway, before we bring Ben on one more time, I want to remind you you can help support this show how? By joining the Members Support Brigade. If you want to know more about that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. If you do become a member and you do use the discounts that I give you, guess what you're going to get? Your money back. That's what will happen, I promise you. So check it out today. It's an easy way to support me and get your money back. Or For many of our members, they tell me all the time that they end up making $100, $150 a year by being a member when they add up all their discounts over the year. So if you're not a member yet, consider becoming one. So before I bring Ben on, um, this is a little bit of ad hoc or uh, add-on here. Um, Something happened during this recording. It's been happening a little bit here and there, and it it, it comes and goes here, and it's in maybe the first uh, 20% of the interview where it seems uh, a great deal of it. While Ben is speaking, there's a, like an electronic popping sound. It almost sounds like a dead gun machine gun going off or something. Uh, I don't know what it is, um, and I, I don't hear it during the interview. And Like I said, this has been in a few episodes lately, uh, but not not as bad as it is here. And again, you'll hear it come and go intermittently. In the audio timeline, it shows as a, a very distinctive downward uh, thing in the audio uh, way, the audio file in the uh, in the print, where you can see like the the audio. Usually, when you look at good audio, you see kind of an equal amount of up and down in the in the wave form. Uh, and these pedit pops are equally spaced. And they go straight down. And that's how they've been when they've shown up otherwise. And again, today, they're worse than they have been. If any of you audio experts out there, when you hear this, can tell me what the hell's going on and what maybe I can do to uh, to prevent it in the future, I would really appreciate it. And I apologize for it. Um, it is what it is. And uh, and we'll do our, our best for you today in spite of it. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest Again, our special guest, Ben Fetterman, better known as Southpaw Ben from the history segment, sophomore and plant science student at Penn State University. He's competed in the Odyssey of the Mind competition for four years in high school, including one trip to the World Finals and three times to the Pennsylvania State Finals. He speaks only on his behalf of his own experiences today, not on behalf of the Odyssey of the Mind organization in any way. And with that, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. I was telling people during the the, you know, the, the intro, like, I'm going to tell you who it is, and you're not going to know, but you do know. And I'm like, it's Ben Fetterman. And I'm like, who's Ben Fetterman? It's Southpaw Ben. So you've been uh, providing content for our show for a long time now as a contributor to the history segment, uh, but you're here to talk about some other things today. But before we get into what we're here to talk about, which is Odyssey of the Mind, um, can you tell people just a little bit about yourself, kind of your background? Uh, I guess we're going to talk about that kind of in the show today because we're going back to when Ben was in high school. But, uh, you know, what what led you to uh, take up that extra projects like this? And what are some of the things you got going on in your life outside of it? Okay, so um, during uh, middle school, I was a part of the um, gifted program for my school. And as such, I was able to participate in like some extracurricular activities. And when we came to sign up for uh, high school classes, uh, we're, the 
high school gifted teacher came down and was telling us about like some of the classes offered there and was telling us about Odyssey of Mind. And at that time, I was really interested in engineering and the like. Um, and that's a lot of what Odyssey of the Mind is. So it caught my attention. Um, yeah. So outside of that, I with this program, I also did other stuff such as um, mock trial and model UN. Um, yeah, through high school, I did a lot of that sort of stuff. Okay. And... Can you kind of tell us about, you know, this this Odyssey of the Mind thing? What what is the Odyssey of the Mind competition? What what exactly is that? Uh Odyssey of the Mind is a competition. Uh it consists of two different parts. There's a long-term problem and spontaneous. Uh the long-term problem um it's a mix of engineering and drama. Uh there's different problems that have different amounts of each. And you'll be given a list of criteria that you have to uh, fulfill. And um, you get points for doing it more creatively and thinking outside the box. Um, the point of the project is to get you thinking differently, not um, approaching problems the usual way. Um, yeah, and it covers anywhere from kindergarten through college. Students can be involved. Um, yeah. Okay, can you give us an example of, like, you know, what are the main types of projects, like maybe even, like, an example of one and, and some of the ways that people work through it? Okay, so there's, for the long-term problem, there's four main types of problems. Uh, the first problem is a type of, called a vehicle problem, and it alternates year by year. One year, you'll have a full-size vehicle that has to fit in, like, a 4 by 4 square and that you have to have a person ride on. The next year, you'll have a smaller vehicle that you have to make. Um, that's about uh, 18 inches by a foot. Uh, and that's generally focused on engineering and less focused on the skit. There's also stuff like technical problems where um, it's a lot less engineering-based, a lot more drama. Uh, there's the classics, which will be something like reimagining um, a classic fable or something and changing it into modern day and then incorporating a little bit of engineering to help make the story go better. There's a structure, which do you remember like if you ever made those balsa towers, like that they'd stack weights on in school? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you do that. And um, yeah, so you do that and then you have to put a performance on around the tower and putting more weights on it. Um, that one's really competitive. My school never did that because there's apparently all types of little tricks. Like we saw people at the competitions having a hairdryer hooked up to the box with a balsa wood inside, trying to get every bit of moisture out, apparently to try to get it just that much stronger. Hmm. Uh, there's a performance problem, which is almost entirely, um, drama, just a little bit of engineering to it. Um, and you have to, um, what's it called? Take, They'll give you a, like a very broad script that you have to do, and then you have to make it creative outside the box. And then there's finally a problem for the primary school kids, um, kindergarten through second grade. And this is to allow younger, um, they call them OMers, Odyssey the Minders, to be able to get started in the world of Odyssey the Mind. Very cool. And, I mean, can you... You did this a lot, so can you, like, what, 
what grouping of that did you participate in, and, and what was that like? Uh, I always participated in the vehicle problem because, like I mentioned earlier, I'm really into engineering. And so we'd always do all types of crazy stuff. Um, like one of our go-to standbys for the four by for the uh, vehicle that you have to ride on that's like four foot by four foot uh, was attaching a drill, a uh, portable drill, to a wagon wheel and using that to drive around with. And so, yeah, we'd do stuff. And then the one year, on the other side, uh, we used a pull starter uh, from someone's old lawnmower or something that we were able to hook up to the other wheel so you could uh, use the pull starter to uh, move around. Gotcha. And, and, like, how do they... How does this work out? Like, how do they score these projects? Because, you know, I can just see the sheer number of, you know, young people participating in them, and a lot of it would be subjective. So is there some sort of, like, a scoring system so that, you know, you can take some of the subjectivity out of it or what have you? Uh, yeah, so uh, when you get the when you sign up for the problem, you'll get a packet that's got like all the explicit details, and one of the pages will just cover um, the scoring. So I'm looking at this 2016 problem that I participated in. So there'll be some points that are completely subjective, uh, such as does it leave the starting area? So you get either five points if it does, or zero points if it doesn't. And then there's more subjective ones, such as the creativity of how it picks up an item. Um, and as you go down through the list, it'll be like listing the various requirements, such as the yeah for this one you had three required items that you had to pick up, and you had to pick them up different ways. So you get points for if you picked it up and dropped it off, how creative it was, and how effective it was in the performance. Um, there's another section that's style. Uh, this is separate from the general scoring. Um, this one's um, a lot more objective, and there'll be two um, predetermined, or sorry, three predetermined um, style elements um, that you have to select. For this one, it was the artistic quality of one of the required repurposed items. So you would choose one of the items that you're using and you had to make it look really nice or impressive or yeah. Um, and then the second one was creativity of repurposing one or more trash items in a costume. So, uh, you would say in this costume, we repurposed this. So we want this to be scored for our style. And then you have two free choice items. So you can choose anything from your performance, such as something about the dialogue maybe, or, um, creativity of the um, propulsion system. So it it lets you like choose like the area that you want them to judge you on for style. And the final area for scoring is spontaneous, uh, which is almost like a whole other separate competition in and of itself. Can, can you kind of explain exactly what that is then? Okay, uh, so spontaneous is a short-term problem. Um, you can practice some for it doing past spontaneous problems or similar things to spontaneous um, examples that they have given. Um, so it breaks down into three groups. There'll be a, there's verbal spontaneous program um, problems, hands-on spontaneous problems, and then combinations. Uh, verbal, you'll be given a question or prompt, and then you have to creatively um, answer the question. 
So if you're asked, name things that are green, um, they'll grade you on how you respond, such as if you say something like fresh, that's just green, you'll get minimal points. Well, if you name something creative, like maybe name a green technology, um, you'll get more points for it. Gotcha. So, like, how... Uh, for, yeah, that's that, that's actually kind of cool because I've actually seen some, you know, games that are like that or whatever. Like, everybody writes down what's green, but the only thing that scores is the ones that, that like, no one else, you know, thought of. So it, it requires mm-hmm. that kind of expanded thinking. Anyway, go ahead. It's just... That, I, I like that because... Especially for kids in that age bracket to have to think beyond, well, you know, well, grass or, or clovers or something like that, you know, to, to be able to think of something that maybe pairs off. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then there's the next category. This is still within spontaneous. This is just one segment of uh, the um, competition. So there's also a possibility you'll get a hands-on problem where you'll be given a bunch of random objects, maybe say toad to see if, how high you can make a stack of these items. Like you might be given paper plates and golf balls and rubber bands and um, paper clips or something and then have to figure out how to stack it into the highest tower and whichever team gets the highest tower will win or something like that. And then there's a combination where you have to explain why you're like make something and then explain it, how it fits into the prompt that you were given. And so these are all, you go in there, you have no clue what's, what you're going to get, and you show up and you get like 10 minutes to solve the problem. So it really keeps you, makes you think on your feet while thinking creatively. So it's really like a two-part thing. Like you give people this really long-term problem that they get a lot of time to think about, and then you, the, this, this spontaneous, is this extrapolated off the long problem, or is it completely unrelated and, and standalone? It's completely unrelated standalone, so it's making sure, like, you're not just putting, like, it's just helping you think more creatively. That's a lot of what Odyssey the Mind is about, getting you to think outside the box and think more creatively. So this is more of a think-on-your-feet type of deal versus the long-term, which is planning and, yeah, preparation. Okay, cool. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about some of the projects you've done in the past? Okay, so one of the projects was the one I was already mentioning um, the 2016, 2016 problem one, it was called no cycle recycle. And you had to design a vehicle that would go around and pick up different items. Um, so for us, we had have a, we used a wagon for a week, sorry, vehicle base. And cause, uh, that's something that we had had on hand from past projects that we liked using a lot. Um, and we used a drill to power it. Um, one of the things we used to make it more creative than just like holding a drill on the wheel was we rigged up a bike brake. So if you squeeze the brake, it would activate the drill. So it moved you forward. So you didn't have to like reach down or out. Um, yeah. And then another year we had a problem and it was, this was the smaller vehicle that had to be one foot by 18 inches. And once it started moving, you weren't allowed to touch it again or else the run wouldn't count. And you had to have a vehicle that ran on tracks. Um, like it was very broad about what that was. So we end up, what, what we ended up doing was a very simple vehicle of two wheels hooked together by an axle with just a string wrapped around the axle with a weight at the end. 
and we had the tracks running on music stands, so it was uh, higher up, so we could let the weight drop, and the dropping weight would move the vehicle. Hmm. That's kind of cool. It's almost like, here's parameters, see how close you can get to cheating without cheating. Which, yes. which I think is actually really important because I think one of the big problems I have in you know, all these years of, of having people work for me and having a lot of them be younger people, and, and I'm not just talking about people that are like you know, 18, 19 today. I'm talking about people that are 18, 19 years old you know, 10, 15 years ago that are in their 30s today. At that same point, you get them into a job and you say, okay, here's what I need done. And they get to a point where they're not sure what to do, so they don't do anything at all. And you come back, and an hour later, they're sitting there staring at a keyboard or at a shovel, depending on what you have them doing. <laughs> and you're like, what do you do? Well, I got this point, I didn't know what to do. And there's, there's a good friend of mine that has a, a catchphrase for life, and it's, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And, <laughs> and, and rules are made to be bent to the absolute limit. Uh, of, of of what they are in in as long as the goal is to actually get the thing done. So I mean I, I actually really think that's awesome that it seems like it's set up to lead the student there. And even if it's a student that normal like there are people that are just that that's who I was. I was always like, what can I get away with? But the person that that is the inside the box thinker, it, it kind of like forces them into an outside the box world, and I. I'm kind of betting, like, if someone gets involved with this as a freshman in high school, it's say that even if they don't go there the first year, if they come back the second year, they're going to because actually seeing others do it, it's going to lead them to, oh, I can do that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do have, like, they call it a spirit of the problem violation where if you blatantly flaunt, like, the rules, like, no. Not breaking them per se, but like taking like the cheating, quote unquote cheating, but not really cheating too far. They can still dock you points. Okay. But yeah, they do. No, they really encourage that outside the box. Don't. If you think of like if we would have done a train for the um, track vehicle problem, we would have scored very poorly. Okay. But yeah, no. And then they also to make you make it even tougher on you. You have a hundred forty-five dollar cost limit. Like you can't. The cost of your materials can't exceed that. Now that's 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 interesting because that's that permaculture design restriction. The greater the restriction, the more elegant the design. Uh, but to give you an example, I'm talking about the cheating. You're not if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So this this friend of mine, his son had a project in school, and it was supposed to build a model house. And it had certain size and all. It was you know about the size of a well half a coconut, but you can't use a coconut, right? But it has to be built from 100% recyclable. Materials. So he built a concrete dome in the shape of coconut with a door in it. And it was going to be judged on how durable it was. And the teacher's like, well, I don't know. It's completely a recyclable material. And, in fact, it's the Mm -hmm. number one recycled material in the world. So that's an example of, like, that's not violating the spirit. That's You said that I was supposed to make a, a structure out of recyclable material, and it had certain parameters, and by being a dome, it met all these other... And I I have to say I encourage rule raping right up to the edge. I mean, that's that's what we need people thinking that way. Because that's how you get innovation, right? By, by going, mm-hmm. okay, that limit... I know you think that limit's important, but I'm going to see how important it really is and see where we can go from here. And it's the old saying about those... 
those who say something can't be done should get out of the way of the people actually doing it, right? So, anyway, what yeah. you, you've you've been doing this for you, you did this for four years. You're in college now, but you did this for four years, and you did get into higher level competition. You know, you did like I guess a regional, and you did state three times. On one of the four years, you actually made it to the nationals. What is it like at that higher level of competition? Um, it's really amazing to be able to go there because, um, so yeah, for the first able to get into states, you have to score either in the top two of your division to be able to move on, or receive what's called the Renatra Fuse Award. I'll come back to that because you're gonna love this that one. Um, but yeah, so when you move on, um, for us, our local competition was at a local uh, college. Um, so we went there, had it scored. When you move up to the next level everything gets harder. Like, your competition gets stiffer because you're competing against the top two of your division. Um, the judges are more strict about the rules, so some stuff you might have gotten away with, like, not completely following, like, the parameters that you had to follow. Um, they're less lenient on. Like, we got docked the one year because our vehicle was supposed to transform the item, and at the lo- local level, they what we did, they were fine with, but when we got to the state level... They said it was too much the person, like the writer, changing the item. So we didn't end up getting points for that. So it just, so you get amped up in every dimension. And it's really cool because the atmosphere there is amazing. Um, Despite how competitive it is, everyone's helping each other. Like uh, one of the, our neighbors, um, neighboring problems, sorry, neighboring teams, um, forgot a drill or whatever, so we just let them use ours. We needed to borrow someone's hot glue gun or a little bit of hot glue for them from them, so they let them let us borrow theirs. Like it's a competitive environment, but it's a friendly one at the same time. So that's really cool. Well, if you win, you want to win because you won, not because the competing team forgot their screwdriver, right? Absolutely, I mean, you know yeah. that. Yeah, I get that. So, like, my guess, my next question then, when you talk about the higher competition, like, so. When you go to, like, your, your regional, your local, whatever it is, and you go on to, like, let's say state, or if you go from state to, like, national, do you have to present that project the same way you presented it the first time, or can you tweak it and modify it as you go to that next level? Uh, not at all. You can trash the whole thing if you want and start from scratch. Yeah, really? Yeah, it's just you did your team showed that it was good enough. You can move on. We are one project. Um, it wasn't great for the local. We ran up on the deadline. Uh, we weren't very good at time management. So, yeah, our teacher almost didn't let us um, take it to the competition because he was, didn't have much faith in it. Um, but thankfully he did because we were able to uh, make it to Worlds. But, like, we tweaked just about everything on that project, made the props better, made the script better, uh, made the vehicle more reliable. Um yeah, it's a good thing we are allowed to fix stuff because the one year we en- somehow managed to leave our vehicle behind at the original competition site, and I guess it got thrown out looking like trash because um, <laughs> that's kind of what it looks like. Um, but, yeah, so you're allowed to completely trash everything, change everything you want. There's no requirements to build off of what you had before. Oh, that's and great. when you get to Worlds, it's kind of funny because after the competition is done, you just see a lot of people because, like, it's for us, Worlds was in Iowa. So was, we drove there because the school was helping pay for it. <laughs> sure. So uh, a lot of the stuff you just chuck at the end or recycle or whatever because you're not you don't want to take that stuff home with you. Like because yeah. there's teams from like Singapore, Thailand, Poland, 
like this world competition is literally it's world. It's not like baseball World Series. It's like actual yeah, world where it's competition. United States and Mexico, right? That's not the world. <laughs> yeah, it, that's cool. It's more like it's like the Little League World Series. I don't know if you're familiar with the Little League World Series, but like yeah. there's it's definitely America centric. Like yeah. there's the America division, then the world. Um, each state gets represented for the world competition. Um, and then depending on internationally, it can be a country or it can be a region. But that's because Odyssey of the Mind was started in the United States and it's a lot more popular here than it is overseas. Just like there's more skiers in the Olympics from the United States than there are from Jamaica, right? Exactly, I mean, it's like yeah. a participation type of thing. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your favorite memory from, you know, four years of doing this? Uh, there's a lot of great stuff. Um, when you went, when we went to Worlds, for example, we were in the, like, there's an opening ceremony. So we were in this um, Iowa State's basketball arena, and everyone's got, like, blinking lights. Like, every state, like, they give you a little, like, a loop bag, basically. Like, we got blinking glasses, a hat, um... So just seeing all the different people there and, like, hearing all the different places they were from was amazing. Uh, also, it's always fun at the end, like, when they're announcing the scores for the competition and um, the results. There's a thing called the Renatra Fusco Award, and that is if you thought – if it's basically if you're extremely creative for their problem, with your solution to a problem, it doesn't even have to work to be able to – um, move on to the next level or get recognized at the highest level. Um, it was created um, originally because during one of the early years of competition, uh, they were supposed to cross a lake or a little pond or whatever. And so one of the teams did it. They made a thing that was basically like a water strider. And um, and that's called Renatra is the scientific name for that. And it was so it like, was moving its legs along to try to, like, make it across the river instead of making a boat with, like, a paddle wheel or something. And the judges at that competition were, like, they couldn't give them points because they didn't complete the course, but because they, like, did such a creative solution, uh, they wanted to be able to recognize them. So that was how the Renatra Fisco Award was born. Um, So just hearing the ones, like, are you familiar with the Sterling engine at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... I think it was last year, I went and watched my brother competing at States, and one of the teams had managed to incorporate a Sterling engine into the propulsion system. And, as you know, those things are probably, are, those things are pretty finicky, especially if you're trying to do it in a time limit. Um, so, they weren't able to successfully complete the course, but because they had used that as a key part of their vehicle design, they were able to move on to the next level because of the recognition for the fact that they were willing to try something risky and really creative. It's very cool. Yeah, and, and I mean, that also kind of plays back into the earlier thing that you can change things, modify things, et cetera, as you move on to that next level. So, you know, in some instances, it might be, well, the judge believes you could have made this work. You just need more time. And we're going to give you a shot to go prove it, I guess. Yeah. And then also um, related to that is sometimes, like for local stuff, if there's only two t- teams, you still have to compete you still have to be able to reach a certain level to be able to move on. Um, like if there's two teams, one team or no teams might go if they don't, the judges don't think the team's worthy to go up to the next level. So if you're, if the team, like you can see before the competition, how many teams are going to be competing in your division and your problem. 
Um, so if you do that and you slack because you see there's just two teams, so you're quote-unquote guaranteed to go, they can still just say, nope, you didn't do well enough. We don't think you're qualified to move on. So it like keeps you honest. Very cool. So this actually seems like a really cool thing uh, as a whole, I mean, just overall. But it also seems like the type of thing that, you know, a lot of people that are homeschooling their kids, one of the reasons they may be homeschooling their kids is they wish there were more things like this in education. They might want to participate. So how can someone's kid get involved if it's not offered by their school or if they're maybe homeschooled? Okay, so if the school doesn't offer it, uh, first of all, go talk to your school. Um, the fee to join is only $135. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so it's $135, and you can submit it, put a team into each of the five long-term problem categories. So it's not just for one team. It's for, You can have five different teams um, going to the competition for only $135. Um, and also you can get... Um, any organization such as a church or even your homeschool co-op to be able to get together and put together a team to go. You don't have to be through a school. I sent you a link over Skype that I um, that t- has like your local program, so you should be able to con to. So if someone's interested in this, they can contact um, their local organization to find out exactly what's involved. Because I think that like getting involved for your regional or state level varies state by state. As some states have more or less competition for it, uh, I mean, more available competitions, so you might have to, so you might have certain states where there's not even enough for a local competition, and there's just a state competition, while other places, like in Pennsylvania, we have both the regional competition and a state competition, so you have to go through your regional first. Well, that's great. I'll make sure that that notes, uh, that lo- uh, link is in the show notes. Um how would you say this maybe has impacted you as far as, like, when you look at, like, your contemporaries in college now? I guess you're probably around 20, 21 years old. Um, when you see people working on a problem, do you, or if you've met alumni from this competition, do you see a difference in their approach to trying to get something done? Absolutely. Like, well, this is going back to high school for me, but um, for my one physics class, we were supposed to design a, like, putt-putt course, like a small one, and then make it, like, out of wood to scale or whatever. So instead of just making, like, you know, have it decorated fancy, I decided for my group we were going to make a two-story um, golf course for it. So, that like, that was me th- working on thinking outside of the box, which I, which I was um, prompted to do more from Odyssey of the Mind. Like just think like there's other competitions I'm sure that do this, but obviously mine definitely really gets you thinking outside the box and also gets you better at um, time management because when you have a lot of stuff going on, it's kind of hard. It can sometimes be hard to remember to fit in all your stuff, but you can't do this pro- project in a week and have it do anything. So it makes you definitely um, work on your time management more. Probably a commitment as well because I mean. It wouldn't. It probably wouldn't be well for someone like me because I'm the guy that will always wait till like the last five minutes to do something and somehow manage to to pull it off. But something like this is they've made it complex enough where you you can't get away with that. I guess you'll learn a lot about teamwork too because this isn't something that you do on your own. This is something that's done in a team environment, right? Yeah, you have a team of up to seven kids, 
Um, but yeah, no, if you're try doing this by yourself, you're not going to have a chance. Um, yeah, it's really strong in teamwork. And like you, I also put stuff off the last minute, but this, for this, um, it really forces you to plan ahead. I mean, it's probably too that accountability of the other team members, not, not only, uh, like saying, Hey, we need you to do this, but also not letting people down. And I think that's another like really great thing to be teaching our young people is like, you can't just screw off because not it's not just you. Other people depend on you because in school, a lot of times, yeah, you can screw off if you want to, and it doesn't really affect any. You're you're screwing yourself, but you're not hurting anybody else. But in this, you've got people that have a you know a lot vested in it, and if you're not pulling your weight, you're letting other people down, and that's one of those real world lessons that kids don't generally get in school. Because when you go out and get a job or you go out and work in a company or work on some sort of a team, you know, and I guess the only place you really do learn that in school is team sports uh, yeah. or the occasional team project. But this actually really, really reinforces that. Yeah. The one year we had a kid who was a major slacker and everyone was always getting on him. Hey, you need to do your part. You need to do your part. You can't just slack off like it. Um, he was one of the kids who just kind of uh, slides by in school and he Ended up towards the end, started getting a lot more, getting more involved with it. But yeah, you definitely get a lot more um, <laughs> encouragement to work together with the team. And another thing we learned from from Odyssey of the Mind was that sometimes um, a little bit of conflict within the team can be a good thing. Like the year we got to Worlds, we were always like butting heads trying to figure out how to do stuff better. Like it was conflict in a good way. Like we were each trying to come up with better ways to do stuff, and. That was one year we were able to get to Worlds as we kept like, hey, we should do it this way. No, 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 that's not good. This is the better way. And then back and forth. And like it about drove the teacher a little bit crazy some of the time, but <laughs> it ended up uh, working out quite well for us. But that's a real world lesson because in the teams I've worked in marketing projects and, and stuff with the more talented the team, the more disagreement there is during the process, the more work it is to come to consensus but that's how talented people work together. This is wrong, that's wrong, no, this is right, here's why I think that. And eventually, it's not one person that dominates and, and wins, you know, basically the title of leader that takes over and makes all the decisions. Each of these things goes through a process till consensus is reached so that when you do proceed with it, it's not, well, Ben won because he was the biggest dick in the group, right? It's Ben contributed this, and Tom contributed that, and Susie contributed this, and that way everybody has buy-in to the final decision. And if you, can't do, if you can't do that, you can't work in a, a corporate team environment. It's not possible because you're going to be challenged. Even when people like your idea, they're going to challenge you to see, yeah, especially if you're young and you're new like a lot of people entering the workforce are, even if that's like a home-run idea, I'm still going to challenge you on it because – First of all, I want to know that you didn't just pull out of your ass. I want to know you really believe in it. And I also want to know, like, can you make it better? Can we make it better? Are you, if we take this, like, let's say you give me this great idea, first day of a, of a team project, and it is a great idea. What I know, as someone that's experienced, it will not look like you came up with it when we get done with it. It's going to change. And if, if I don't think you can deal with that, then... You're going to get pushed out of it because if you're emotionally attached to it, and that's like another thing that people really need to learn. So that, that seems like that's something that, that gets taught maybe not by design but by just result in this. 
Oh, yeah, like, we had so many years that we'd start out with this one plan. Like, the one year, we were all in on doing a, um airplane. that It was for the track problem, an airplane, and we were going to consider, like, it driving around, flying around attached to a string as a track. Uh, but then the problem gets clarified, and they'll, like, clarify the definition of a track, for example, and we found out, okay, that was a little bit too far outside the box. That doesn't count as a track, so we had to switch it up, and that's how we ended up coming up with the the two wheels with the axle and the dropping weight. And then for that problem, like, for the style thing, we ended up making the simplicity of the vehicle part of this thing that we were scored on. Well, very cool. Hey, before we wrap up here, you also have a YouTube channel. I've got the link to it in the show notes. It's really not about any of this stuff. It's just kind of some of your own stuff. So you want to tell us a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, so over this summer, inspired by you, I decided to um, raise some geese for meat, and that was just me documenting my journey. Um, I mean, it's very poor quality, and I definitely definitely made me appreciate you and videotaping all your projects a whole lot more. Because um, I saw how much effort is required to be able to videotape it and try to get out of video every day. But yeah, it's just, it was my journey raising the geese and a little bit on my garden. Um, I'm not very active on that with college and all. Uh, but I might come up with, try to come up with another project for this summer to videotape and put up there. Very cool, man. And and then, you know, you've been a contributor to the uh, the history segment on TSP Wiki. Just real quick, I mean, what is it that made, because like, Somebody doesn't just do that for the you know the hell of it if they have no interest. What is it that made you interested in history? Honestly, I'm not quite sure. I've always had an interest in history, just learning about what happened in the past. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I love mm-hmm. listening to that podcast. Um, I just yeah, I've always had an interest, and it was always one of my favorite parts of the episode. No offense to you, um, hearing the um. um Alex shrugged history segments and sure. takes on it. And so when Alex um, was out of commission for a little bit, I figured, hey, might as well jump in because I'm sure other people enjoy this segment too. Very cool. So I, uh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, that was just, that was what I was saying. Um, so I figured I'll jump in. And so I've tried sticking around with it, but school's gone the way recently, unfortunately, a little bit. No, I understand that. You know, I just I I don't know why I've never thought of this, but like a guy your age, you've not never lived at a time where you didn't have podcasts available to you. No, nope. and, and and I think about in the eighties and nineties, all my traveling, and, and and having to buy like sets of audio cassette tapes on a subject to have content in that situation, and. I realized, like, today, just from podcasts, the amount of education and entertainment that you can get uh, and the diversity of it is insane. And I think, you know, maybe it's not just like, you know, people always say kids don't know how good you have it. Like, I never really thought about that. Like, I would have been a mad podcast consumer in my early 20s. I mean, I would have been, you know, listening eight hours a day because I was in the car eight hours a day. And and we used to have like if you wanted to learn about a subject, you might spend a hundred bucks on a on a tape set, you know, that was maybe fifteen hours of content, and you'd wear that thing out before you'd take it and trade it in <laughs> and, and sell it secondhand or whatever. Um, so it, it's kind of a cool thing, I guess, really to think about how much people can gain from podcasts. Oh yeah, I've I've learned more from podcasts and YouTube and the internet than I have ever from school. 
Um, like, you know how you're saying you spend 100 bucks on, you'd have to spend 100 bucks on the tapes that I yeah. spent, like, to get some of the old um, podcasts from, like, get all the old Hardcore History podcasts uh, through Dan Carlin. Like, you have to pay for older ones, so I was, bought all of them. Like, it, it was like 100 bucks, but that was like, that's probably like hundreds of hours of podcasts and information there. Yeah, it was absolutely. so worth it. Because it's so much more um, scalable. Like, so w- the other thing was, like, when I was, when I was young, uh, I remember it, it was a big thing in marketing. You would make a tape that would be like an infomercial. There would be maybe an hour-long infomercial, you know, 30 minutes each side, that was about this product or this service and all these wonderful things that it did. And it was actually very effective on a percentage basis. If, you know, if 10,000 of them were sent to targeted people you know, you might have a response rate of 10 to 15% that at least became higher-level leads. But it was damn expensive because <laughs> each tape was, you know, you had a buck into it, plus, you know, say 50 cents for shipping and handling a, another So two bucks into the production and delivery of a single tape. And if the analyst that figured out, like, okay, in our budget we can spend $22,500 and do 10,000 people, and here's our, you know, uh, 250,000 uh, person database. We need to pare this down and find the 10,000. If that analyst got that wrong, the money was gone. But you can take and create this content today that's a story or a marketing thing or an educational, and it is as scalable as the demand. And in other words, if, when we get done with this show today and I edit it, I'm done. And 10 years from now, if somebody wants to listen to it, they can. It, I, I don't have to push another button. I don't have to do anything else, and I don't have to manufacture it in any way, shape, or form ever again. And the scalability of that is really incredible, and that makes education scalable, and it's going to be interesting to see like how that impacts education. I know, you know my thoughts on that as a whole, but I think that maybe what we'll see is more and more things like what you need education for or, or uh, uh, systems for, or bureaucracies for, because bureaucracies aren't always bad if they're small, private, etc., is things like uh, this odyssey of the mind. And, and more so than so that Johnny can learn to sit on his ass for seven hours a day and be told he has ADD because he doesn't want to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh yeah. You know. So anyway, man, I really appreciate your contributions to the history segment, for you being with us today, and, uh, and, and thanks for being on the air with us today, Ben. Absolutely. It's great talking to you, Jack. Well, after all the times over the years that we've heard from Southpaw Ben, it was good to actually hear Southpaw Ben, and I think this is a really great project. And I think it's something that, that you know, I, I, I come down on the education system all the time for very good reasons, but if your kids are in it, they might as well get the best they can out of it. And that's the truth. I mean, in, in spite of some of my criticisms, in many ways, you get out of, of the school system and the programs around it and independent programs like this that work with it, what you put into it. And the better job you do as a parent in guiding your child through that, the better results they're going to get as students. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you a really simple, easy way to help support the Survival Podcast is do your online shopping. When you're going to do that, just go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there. And uh, you, you, you just kind of cruise on around, and you can see all my product reviews and stuff like that. But as long as you go there before you shop online, you can uh, help support us no matter what you eventually buy, which means it doesn't cost you nothing to do uh, a little bit to help us out. Now, 
Our product that we have reviewed for you today is one I reviewed a long time ago and decided it was time to bring it back around. It's made by Hoosier Hill Farms, and it's paprika. Yes, paprika. The, the, you know, the spice. Now, why do I bring these cooking spices around so often? There's, there's, there's really three reasons. First, they're consumable, meaning you're going to use them over and over again, so it makes sense to have high quality and save money on it. Uh, and the second one is that they're expensive in small quantities, which is the way most people buy them. If you, if you want to really have a heart attack, You, know, you think about what you pay for a, a piece of steak or something like that. Go to the spice aisle and that little bottle of uh, paprika that you get for four bucks or something like that. They're down on the price label, you'll see a thing that prices it by the ounce or the pound. And do the math and figure out what you pay for a pound of paprika. You might do a old Fred Sanford. I'm coming. I'm coming. I mean, literally, when you and you realize like you're doing this for all these different seasonings and spices. Um, so it just makes sense to pay less for them. And, and the third is they're incredibly easy to store in bulk, so it's it, it's not like it's a complicated thing. I mean, you go out and buy a cow, well, you better be making a bunch of biltong, a, a bunch of beef jerky, or you better have a big-ass beef uh, a deep freezer. But you buy a couple pounds of paprika, you throw some jars, and you're good for a year. I mean, really, it's that simple. Now, When I was looking for a paprika to buy in bulk, I went and I, I did a lot of research like I always do. This this brand has 195 reviews on Amazon, 4.5 stars overall. And so I gave it a shot because it's $13.99 a pound. And when I when I actually first brought the suit, it was $12.99 a dollar in the past two years. And I ordered it, and it was fantastic. And all I do when it comes in, uh, one of these jugs will fill about three and a little bit more of a, of a pint jar of, uh, you know, a ball jar. And I just pop them in there. Usually I put them in the vacuum canner. So we use paprika and everything to the point where it's not even worth worrying about. I mean, you seal it, put it in a dark, cool cabinet, and you're good. And that way I always have paprika. And all I do is when I get that last jar out of my storage pantry, uh, it's going to last still a while. You're talking about a pint of paprika. We use a lot, but I don't even have much. And we just, I just order another one at that point, and we're never out of it. We do that with all of our spices and seasonings and herbs. Uh, anything that we don't grow fresh that we rely on like that, uh, we buy it in bulk. We buy peppercorns like that, buy star anise like that, cinnamon like I mean, everything. And if you think about it this way, you save on average, I did the math, about $10 a pound. About $10 a pound you save. If you use heavily used 10 different herbs and spices to the point where you use about a pound a year each, which isn't that much, that's $100. That's $100, and you get better quality instead of McCormick. Don't buy McCormick unless it's the only thing available. I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, you can always help support us how? Shopping online at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. And, you know, we're in Gender Bender Week. And, uh,. This is uh, the week where we take songs that were originally covered by male or done by male artists and were later covered by female artists. And, and this week we have one that I would have thought really wouldn't work, or this day we have one that really wouldn't work. ACDC. ACDC. Man, I just, I just don't see that being a song that there's many women that can pull off, or I mean a band that many other songs move with. And then when I saw what the song was, it's called Shoot to Thrill. Oh, I remember that song. I, 
I just don't know. Uh, but here's what John Adam, who puts these lists together for me, said about it. Originally written and performed by ACDC in 1980, after hearing this version, I'd hoped that Lizzie Hale would take over touring for ACDC. I'm sorry, Izzy Hale would take over touring for ACDC when Brian Johnson was forced to retire in 2016. Instead, they got Axl Rose. I thought, you know, I actually am not in love with Axl Rose as a frontman for... Uh, ACDC. He doesn't. I don't. I, I loved Axel in a day. I just don't think he's got the pipes anymore. Just it's not there anymore, and it's not anything against him. He just doesn't have it. So I pulled this thing up and I went, "Holy crap!" When I heard that first line come out. So there's no deep meaning in this song. Although I will tell you, it's not as cut and dry as most people think it is. Most people think it's just straight up about sex, and it's a big part of it. But this is really about back in the '70s and early '80s when this song was written was when doctors started handing out Mommy's Little Helper, which was, you know, Valium and other prescription meds to housewives all over the planet, but especially in England and the United States. And a lot of them were depressed, and that wasn't enough, and they ended up out in clubs alone, uh, even though they were married. Just saying. And that's really... The, and then somewhere, uh, the writer, I can't remember which one of the band members wrote it, or if it was who it was, but somebody heard the term shoot the thrill, liked it, and it got merged together and made into this song. But uh, check out this, man, Izzy Hale. Um, it, it, just absolutely awesome. The band that she's in is called Hailstorm. And I had never heard of her, and I had never heard of Hailstorm. I know I live under a rock. But when I, uh, when I listened to this, I mean, the first thought was, wow, that's really good. I can't believe she would actually be a better lead singer of the current ACDC than... Um, Axl Rose. The second thought was, though, because, see, I don't live completely under a rock. You know who Amy Lee is? If you don't, I do. And see, maybe you live under a rock. I said, man, she should hook up with Amy Lee. Well, I'm just going to say this. Go to YouTube, stick in Izzy Hale and Amy Lee, and see what you find. So I guess I'm not that deep under the rock. And anyway, I hope you enjoy today's bit of rock. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even better.